So today we're going to talk about electric cars. In particular, I'm speaking with Pam Frank, who is the CEO of Charge EVC, which is a nonprofit that promotes carbon reduction and clean energy through electric vehicles. Those of you who've listened to the show for a while know that I'm not the world's most ardent capitalist. And often I like to think about environmental solutions in terms of changing our spirits, changing how we relate to the earth, how we relate to each other, how we relate to our own psyches. And there's something awfully efficient and sexy about a technology that can help save energy, that can keep carbon in the ground, that people want and get excited about and want to buy and want to talk about. So I want to be careful about not getting kind of too precious about my environmentalism and not making, you know, the perfect and the spiritual the enemy of the good and the practical. And what I discovered in the conversation was that Pam was expressing like a really deep transformational spirit about she's a visionary. She's not just sort of a policy wonk, which she is. She's not just a clean energy geek, which she is. She's also a visionary and points out how electric vehicles and how changing the way we think about cities and about transportation in general can create a really beautiful, respectful, more just world. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I hope you really enjoy it. So without further ado, Pam Frank, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howie. I'm actually very excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about uh, saving the environment, right? And we were we were just chatting before about like we're recording this like two two or three days after two days after the uh, the insurrection coup riot things and kind of the weight of history and how people view like whatever's happening now just seems to be so normal and like it's always been. And then something comes along and really shakes us up. And I think that I think that's a kind of an interesting um, framing for talking about environment and what the potential is for environmental healing and what what the costs are. You know, what's what are the risks? You know, we're, there's a lot of denial about what's what's happening. But um, let's let's just let's start with you. Tell us uh, what, what you do and then we can kind of get into it. Okay, um, sounds good. So what do I do? So I um, professionally, um, I am I, I work in an energy consulting practice um, for the last nine years. Um, I'm a vice president there. Uh, and it's a it's a kind of a unique place uh, that I'm very fortunate uh, to have landed there because it gives me a lot of I think creative freedom to when you work for a consulting practice and you want to work on certain things, the name of the game is always trying to find someone to pay you for what you want to do. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and being there, uh, it's a firm called Gable Associates has also enabled me to start. Um, I seem to be kind of a serial entrepreneur in some odd way. Uh, so I've been able to start a, a coalition that, um, that focuses on the electrification of transportation, and and uh, and Gable kind of manages that. So, I in my daily um, routine, I spend quite a bit of time uh, focusing on electrifying transportation, um, and the group is called Charge EVC, and it's a it's a not for profit group of very strange bedfellows. Um, 
not-for-profit environmental groups, consumer advocates, utilities, um, charging companies, car companies. I mean, just strange bad fellows. I like to say everybody with big oil. Um, and uh, and then I also, with with a gable hat on, I'm, I'm very much involved in innovative technologies uh, like solar that I've been involved with for 25 years and battery storage and offshore wind. Uh, and these things are all related. And so they make sense to me because they're all about um, reducing carbon at the end of the day, which is kind of been when you say what do you do i guess i try to chase carbon <laughs> and, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, mitigate carbon that's kind of been um the common theme of my career uh-huh and so when when did you first realize that carbon was a thing that we had to worry mm-hmm. about yeah so that's a kind of a funny story it's something i like to share a lot with younger people um because I was one of those uh, people that I was very sort of uh, late bloomer, uh, and it took me a really long time to, to figure out or to really stumble upon a passion. And it really was a stumble upon. So I was forced when I went to work as a Jewish community organizer um, in the 1990s. I was, for- and I say forced, I mean, it was nothing I was interested in. My late chairman kind of insisted that the Jewish community get on the map with regard to um, environmental issues. And I just remember sitting there my first day on the job, he said that to me, and I just thought, oh, gosh, not what I'm interested in, but it's my job, so I have to do it. But that was 1992. And in 1992, um, there was something something, uh, interesting that happened. It was the first Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. And... um, a lot of information started to come out about climate change. Um, And so as part of my job, I started reading about this because when the Jewish community wants to engage in issues that are not specifically Jewish, they typically look to do it in, in cooperation with other faith groups, right? They just look around and Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Catholics, you know, and, and work together on something like immigration is an example, right? Uh, so I started sniffing around and I found that there were a group of, uh, of, of uh, Protestants that actually considered themselves interfaith, which I kind of joked with them about. I'm like, you know, you need some Jews and, you know, some Muslims and some Catholics to really make this interfaith. But they thought they were interfaith and they had gone to this Earth Summit. That's really how I, I got um, involved in this. It was forced upon me. I started reading, which is always dangerous, and started, um, it was sort of like watching that pot of water slowly boil, you know, with Mm -hmm. the frog, (laughs) realizing most people aren't going to pay attention to the fact that our carbon emissions are rising in 1992, because there was really no impact that you could see. But it yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I remember sort of being environmentally aware at that time and carbon was not on my radar at all. It was like acid rain and ozone layer. And maybe some, you know, junk in the oceans. But carbon, I don't I don't I think it was only in the last 10, 15 years that I was aware that this was like a real big issue. And so you you were like, you know, 30 years ago, essentially, you got caught on. Yeah, it's always it's funny, though, how like I always wonder about why, like different things kind of appeal to different people. Right. So I have no explanation. And I've thought about it a lot about why it was this, why it was this carbon thing that captured my imagination. Well, what what were what did you see 
that made you say this is this is a serious issue? Well, I, I think, you know, I've always been fascinated. Now, it's funny when you were talking about um, uh, the environment, you know, I, I always I can't I don't like that word. Um, the reason I don't like that word is because if I always feel like it it puts human beings apart from something like the environment is something we live in. Right. Mm. Um, but really, it's it's all inter intermingled and interlinked. It's more I like the word ecosystem, right? Because it's more holistic. And I I I guess I felt um, because I've always been awed by this web of life and the interconnectivity of all things, you know. Uh, and spent a lot of time thinking about that, even as an undergraduate. Um, I think what I realized is when I was looking at carbon. That it, this was something systemic, right? It was something that happened globally. It was something that was kind of creeping up on us. And it seemed like an extraordinarily important and difficult problem. So now you could ask me what happened to me in my past that I'd be attracted to extraordinarily difficult, challenging problems. But um, I think that was part of what was so interesting to me was also just the hubris of, my gosh, performing this amazing experiment with our planet, um, you know, for the first time, human beings actually being able to influence the atmosphere and the ecosystems was terrifying to me. Mm. So what, what did you see as the potential, you know, downstream effects? Like, you know, now we've got, you know, raging. We, we're now everybody who has the eyes to and the willingness to look and see what carbon in, in our world has done the excess. What were you seeing in the early 90s that, you know, like what, what were the doomsday scenarios yeah. the day after tomorrow is that you were concerned about back then? Actually, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think I was more concerned about the things I, I couldn't foresee. Right. The unpredictability and this this idea that as human beings, we have uh, we're a little bit um, blind when it comes to um, logarithmic thinking, right? Like, it's very hard. We think linearly, right? It's very hard for us to comprehend and understand how things can jump um, um, exponentially. It's just not how we're wired to think. And so I, I think I was more concerned by what we didn't know and what we wouldn't easily be able to predict. Of course, there were the things that everyone understood, which is higher temperatures, you know, more energy in the atmosphere, storms, flooding. I mean, this stuff we understood. But I think what was chilling to me was all the stuff um, I think we were going to have a really hard time predicting. You know, when you look out to the solar system and the planets and you sort of see this really fine band that allows human life to flourish, hmm. you get a little nervous about, you know, flirting with the extremes on that band. <laughs> That's so interesting because it's, it's totally not the answer I expected, but it makes so much sense that, you know, the things that we should be worried about are the unknown unknowns. And it's like I think it's a testament to both like there are people who are so smart that they can't conceive of unknowns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, 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 they just think they have. And, and there's people who are not smart enough to realize it. But like to be where you are, to be like, I have all this knowledge and I have the humility 
to understand that what I can't predict is the real scare. Like when, if you're talking about risk management, you know, working for a consulting company, that would be a terrible answer to give to a client, right? Like, yeah, there's risk, but I don't even know what it could be. Right? They're not going to cut you a check for that. But to have the humility no. <laughs> to say, like, the unknown unknowns are the things that we should worry about. That's 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 quite remarkable. I'm very, I'm, I'm like really impressed. Well, I I don't know if. Uh if it's the sort of wild imagination I feel like I've always had um, ever since I was a kid. But, um, I, and I don't know if it's something, listen, humi humility is, um, I always think is sort of an essential um, characteristic for, uh, for us to be carrying around because, and this may have something to do. I was thinking in anticipation of talking to you, I was thinking kind of about why I've always been wired to think this way and how that's kind of, flourished really kind of grown over the years and i believe it or not it's going to sound sort of funny i was thinking about back in in college um i was really interested in medicine and i worked in a in a biochemistry lab that was actually studying clotting factors um human clotting factors um that allows this extraordinary thing to happen when you injure yourself right magically mm. our blood clots and sort of like that fine band i was talking about uh -huh. It's always in a very, very specific balance. If your blood's too thin, you're going to bleed out, but you do need it to clot if you have injury, right? It's this really fine band. So in order to do this um, and study this, I was, many mice died at my hands, many. Um, mm. And uh, I got really into the weeds and very specific about this amazing and very unknown machinery that's the human cell. And its ability to make um, proteins uh, and cells that make specific proteins. And why I've been thinking about this a lot is because of COVID and the approach to the vaccinations and this messenger RNA sort of uh, look at vaccines, which is it's a very different approach. But it's really saying, hey, we don't really understand the machinery of the cell. We understand it works really well. Let's just get it to do what we know it does best, which mm -hmm. is introduce this yeah it's just a fascinating and different approach and i realize maybe yeah. when you spend time like looking at the elegance of sort of the our systems and our biological systems you come away really odd quite frankly you just come away really odd if i could come up with some great way to explain you know what a what a t-cell does to produce a, a a lock and key mechanism to form something that exactly is going to fit like a perfect combination to a safe um, to get to a result that prevents illness. It's, it's extraordinary. What, and we don't really understand how that works yet. Hmm. Still, all these years, we don't fully appreciate the immune response and how that works. That's not my field at all, but it's a, an area that I have just been thinking about a lot lately. And I realized maybe part of walking around with a sense of humility um, is part of walking around with a sense of awe, right? Mm -hmm. Or waking up every morning and realizing all these little miracles that happen under our nose. Mm. You know how we notice them. It's beautiful. So, so back to the 90s, mm. you, you've woken up to the, the dangers of flirting with, with the extremes of our atmosphere of, of uh, of carbon and first summit in Rio in 92. But like when you look at 
culture, civilization, politics, like everything you could look around and see is going in completely the wrong direction and accelerating in the wrong direction in terms of the mantra of, of economic growth, of like bringing growth to third world countries, like everything is producing more and more carbon and nobody like how did you like how do you not throw in the towel? How, how yeah. did you how did you see like where can we go from here? <laughs> it, yeah. just, it seems impossible. No, no. That So, Harry, that's actually, I think, a, a really good question that keeps a lot of people from engaging in the issue because it's just really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and so I think you have to, again, stay humble. I'm one person. What can I do to affect some change? Um, and so you start where you think you can make the best contribution. You can't do everything. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to be like the scientist that invents a way to suck carbon out of the atmosphere really efficiently. That's not what I do. Um, and as you get sort of smart about where you can make your contributions and sort of what the opportunities look like in front of you. Right. And you try to take things in little chunks. Right. To try to make progress. I think back in the 90s, I was in my 30s. I was a really young person in my 30s, just in terms of my emotional, intellectual maturity. I was working for a Jewish communal organization who, yeah, stumbles upon this, this terrifying prospect of carbon emissions. So what's a Jew to do? Like, what am I going to do? In that <laughs> so given where I was at the time, I said, all right, you know, I was doing community organizing. And I'm like, how, how can we start to infuse a sort of moral imperative in the conversation? And, and here's an interesting, um, I don't think a lot of people realize this. So back in the early 90s, we had like, if you remember that nonsense with the contract on America, we called it the contract on America. That Newt oh, yeah, the Newt Gingrich thing. Yeah, remember all that? And yeah. part, part of uh, the, the mission in there was this small thing about um, really disabling the um, Endangered Species Act. And what was interesting is that there was a lot of noise coming from it wasn't partisan. It was really industry driven. So a lot of logging industries in the West and in the um, in the Southwest and, and Northwest of the, of the country, uh, some Democrat and Republican really were challenging the act and, and they were trying to dismantle it. Well, little known facts um, the thing that stopped that cold was a bunch of evangelicals that organized the Evangelical Environmental Network huh. in, that basically came down to the Republicans. <laughs> As you know, the evangelicals, evangelicals are and have been a somewhat important cons, um, constituency <laughs> for the Republicans, right? And when they were in control, the evangelicals come down to Washington en masse. And do you know what they say to the Republican leaders? They say, stop it. Don't monkey with God's creation. Hmm. You're damaging these ecosystems. And guess what? It just stopped. Wow. <laughs> right? And I remember sitting with that when I learned about it and thinking, damn, that's interesting. And so um, I realized, and this is sort of, my introduction to politics um, to try to change the culture and to try to change the narrative, it helps sometimes like a little shock and awe helps. So if I could go down to Washington and this is going to sound like a setup for a bad joke. It's not. If I could stand down in Washington in a congressman's office with a rabbi, a priest, a nun, an imam, like 
you know, which I did, and talk about these things from a very different perspective. First of all, it would be remembered, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was something different. It was a different way to have the conversation. So we started doing that. And I felt like that was a contribution I could make at the time, which is let's start to change a little bit the conversation and the culture um, and the language that we use to talk about why this stuff is important. And so I formed a interfaith environmental organization, which I'm thrilled still is going strong today called Green Faith. And it was state-based. Again, I'm in my 30s. I'm in New Jersey. I'm working through, uh, um, you know, uh, religious and spiritual communities. That seemed like something we can do. And I'm, I'm so proud of that work that's done today because they're working not just um, in New Jersey, but nationally and internationally. Mm-hmm. So that's gone on. And- so that's 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 so interesting to talk about coming to a Congress with a bunch of faith leaders, because like, the you know, I remember myself in sort of those days, like, I'm like liberal, progressive, fact based. And so we're and so and that's kind of how the environmental movement talks. It's like, you know, cap and trade. What's the value of the wetland? How many, you know, the billion, how many, what are the billions of dollars that are going to be destroyed by converting the wetland into highway or athletic fields or grazing? And it's all, you know, there, there's there's intelligence and, and good data there, but it's not shock and awe. It's conver- it's sort of converting everything to the common denominator of money, as opposed to the environmentalists are saying God's earth is sacred. There's the money is not come into this equation. Yeah. You, you, so that's an interesting thread to pick up on, because, you know, I went from from really um, sort of passion and politics and changing the narrative to where I am now, I mean, I, I ultimately decided once Green Faith was was doing its thing, I think I had two, I, I birthed the organization and two children and finished <laughs> a master's degree all inside of four years. So I was a little bit nuts. <laughs> but once I kind of came out of all of that, I, I looked around and I said, okay, this Green Faith thing, I, I felt like it needed to take its next step, it really needed somebody with a collar, and I was not going to go to rabbinical school. And I thought, okay, I, I, I want to look to do something different. Interestingly enough, Howie, and this is sort of funny, I started, I really wanted, since I'd been talking about ideas and promoting um, these things that weren't tangible, I really wanted to start making change I could see. And just, you know, you kind of remain open to things. And I was trying to figure out what I would do next. And along came an opportunity with, of all things, a solar company. And I just remember thinking to myself, I should do that. for. I should learn about this. I would like to actually see something at the end of the day standing in a field or sitting on a roof that's actually helping solve the problem. Like, Mm -hmm. that's cool. And, uh, and I, I, and, and so since that time, because I did that for almost eight years, I worked in a, in a, for the, for a, a private startup solo company, um, in, in startups, again, I'm just seem to be attracted to, to birthing things. Um, you learn a lot and you have to learn a lot really quickly. You sort of learn or die. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and even today in my position at, at Gable, as a consultant, I realized like in order to affect change, you need both, right? You need facts 
you do need facts and analysis, right? And, and, and everything you advocate for has to be grounded in good science and good facts and good data. But boy, you also need passion. You need the optics of the sort of, um, you know, very diverse interests, which is why, you know, Charge UBC as an organization works well, you know. Um, it's so much easier for politicians to um, to say yes to things when they don't have a lot of people um, arguing against, right? Mm-hmm. So the best thing is to build a really big tent. And, and, and this particular area of electrifying transportation, in my mind as an organizer, which I think is where my heart is, was sort of like the mother load for community organizing and getting different interests to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it does, you know, we do have to have facts at our disposal, to your point, and get into those conversations and have that homework done on the one hand. But on the other hand, what drives change? What drives, you know, the passage of laws, right? The changes in regulation. You got to have a fair amount of of passion and be able to tell a really good story. And I mean, we've talked about storytelling before, but you're not going to win hearts and minds with facts and figures. Right. You know, and I mean, the other thing I found so interesting when I was, you know, kind of uh, looking at what you were doing on Facebook and, you know, you have a lot of like, you know, pictures of your family, your chickens and stuff. But then there was also this other thing that got me so interested because like when I think of environmentalism, I think about, you know, hippies climbing trees in California and not, you know, to prevent. And there's something beautiful about sort of counterculture environmentalism about back to the land. And, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, we know that that's not going to save us. Right. At least in the numbers that we have right now that we, we need some sort of stop gaps. And so like electrification of vehicles like clearly isn't the the end all be all environmental solution, but it is something that can really slow things down, can get a lot more people on board, getting them to start thinking, identifying as environmentalists. And I just read in the news today that now officially the world's richest human being is an electric car magnate. You know, it's funny when you're trying to pick the things you want to focus on. I I did a back in when I was in solar, um, we had done some analysis to really figure out where the biggest chunks of carbon were coming. And um, and we were doing it for the state of New Jersey. And our findings were not dissimilar, too dissimilar. It's a little different in other states. Right. But in New Jersey, the majority of our carbon emissions come from the transportation system. That's just a fact, right? And I remember this was back in 2009. I remember looking at that data and thinking, boy, you know, the idea of an electric car, and we had some electric cars back then, but they were more science experiment and very fringy, and the range was very limited. And I remember talking to my colleague at the solar company who now works with me at Gable, and I remember both of us kind of rubbing our hands together and saying, man, can't wait it's probably going to be about four or five years we know where the battery technology is going but as soon as we have electric cars that are capable of mass market appeal right they have the range that most people want they're affordable as soon as we get to that point 
that's what we want to work on. And the reason we thought this was twofold. A, it's the biggest chunk of the carbon in the state. And B, cars are sexy. Cars are easier, right? Like my friends that toll in energy efficiency when I was in solar used to like bemoan the fact that they could never get anyone's attention, you know, whether it was regulators or, you know, just, it's just not sexy. I'm like, solar panels are sexy. Like there's marketing involved, right? In helping people get excited about things. And what's so thrilling about electric cars is there's so many different kinds of buyers out there. Only one of those buyers is someone who's like, really into the environment, like you said, the tree hugger, the right. But there's like another woman or man out there that's like, look, I, I've done the spreadsheet analysis for the lifetime costs of my car. I come out way ahead on electric. They buy for those reasons. And then there's people that are just like real techies. They just love the technology, right? And they're going to buy it for those reasons. And then you bump into another fascinating core cohort, war veterans. War veterans who have had to defend supply lines for oil mm. and die or watch their friends and colleagues die. They're also a huge cohort of supporters of electric cars. Wow. And I'm, and I'm, I'm guessing that once you have an electric car, to some extent, you have an identity. So we see this a lot, you know, in the plant based movement around um, like like you do a meatless Monday mm. and the vegans, you know, and the environmentalists and the vegans go like that's totally meaningless. It's not going to change their health. It's not going to change our consumption. Mm. Right. But it's like this thing, like you make a small commitment and all of a sudden saying yes to other things makes more sense. If you have your your Volt or your Tesla, then why not get panels on your roof? Then why not say, hey, you know what? We know what else looks really cool going garbage free. So you are, I agree a thousand percent. It's like a gateway drug. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, I, listen, for myself, uh, I always said, ever since I got into this, this, this area of ecosystem or environment or whatever we want to call it, um, I always said to myself every year as part of my resolution or my list of things I want to do differently each year, I was going to incorporate one change in my life that made a difference in my carbon emissions. And you could bet I couldn't wait until I could get an electric car. Now, given the extreme weather we have in New Jersey now, I might even be able to get solar panels because we've lost enough trees. I never really wanted to cut down an 80, 100-year-old pine tree um, to make room for solar panels. Yeah, that's, that sounds like it would... The math wouldn't work either, I don't yeah, think. But, but we lost them, quite frankly. Uh, anyway, so... I, but my point is, every year, whether it's it's like a low-flow showerhead or composting or getting chickens so I could eat eggs, you know, protein from my backyard until I got my electric car four years ago, which, you know, since I'm one of these geeks that keeps track of her carbon footprint, made, the, mm -hmm. made a big disproportionate impact on my carbon emissions. Um, but you're right about it. It is a sort of identity change. What we want to be careful about, Howie, is that we don't want it to. And I saw this with the Prius. With the Prius, the Prius was a car for white, elite, environmental people. 
it just was. I mean, we used to joke, I had a Prius, we used to joke that we should all get together and um, drink Chardonnay with our cars and, and toast to how fabulous we all are, uh, right? I mean, it felt like that. Uh-huh. And um, what we really want to be careful about, and why I'm so excited about 2021 and 2022 for, for new EVs, is we're going to get cars and trucks that are going to appeal to broader segments of the population. And in one story I always love to tell, I was coming back from a meeting in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in the winter. And I say in the winter because the efficiency of a battery in a car is variable depending on temperature mm-hmm. and depending on um, how you drive. But believe it or not, that, that range, if my car gets... 230 miles of range on a charge on a sunny 70 degree day. If it's a really cold day, um, that range can go from 230 miles to about 180. Mm. So I was driving back on a day like that from Harrisburg and I had to stop and get some charge. And I drive a bright orange Chevy Bolt with a B, not Volt, Bolt. And it's very conspicuous. I don't even like orange, but I got it orange because I wanted people to notice. Still, people don't know that I'm driving an electric car. But anyway, <laughs> pull into this rest stop in Pennsylvania off the turnpike. And right next to me, literally right next to me, pulls in a really large truck. And you got to understand, like, there were many spaces he could pull into. It's like going into a movie theater, an empty movie theater, sitting down and having someone sit right next to you. It was weird and creepy. And I'm like... Before I got out of the car, I looked at him and I'm like, oh God, I wonder if he's going to give me a hard time. I get out of the car, he watches me charge, you know, then I get ready to go into the restaurant to get myself a cup of coffee. And he looks at me and he, go, and he says, when are they going to make those for me? When are hmm. they going to make one of those for me? Uh-huh. And, I ju- and then we had a great conversation. It, it, it underscored for me, we don't want this technology like what happened with solar to become partisan, you know, hippies, solar panels, Democrat, like for some reason that all got lumped together in some very strange way. Yeah. We want, we want cars and trucks that everybody from every political persuasion and that's I know, but th- happening. I know there's, but there's kind of an emotional cost to that. Because like when I had a Prius, I was fabulous. And, and it was, you know, like there is some sort of courage required to say, I want I don't want to be special about this. I want everyone to have it. Um, That's the I always laugh. I say, look, none of the benefits and we have long lists of benefits that we're able to quantify very carefully. But none of the benefits come to fruition unless these cars are out on the roads operating mm-hmm. en masse and plugging mm-hmm. into our electric distribution system. Right. That's what that's kind of what I was so curious about with like the work you're doing, because it's so on the ground. It's really unsexy, although it supports a very you know sexy exterior. You know, I'm thinking um, I follow a guy named Tony Saba. I don't know if you know who that is, he has like rethinking humanity and he, he has a slideshow. He's basically saying um, like we're, we're at a point where a few different technological innovations have come together to, that are going to completely change. Like he, he thinks car ownership is going to be a thing of the past within the next five to 10 years between solar, 
um, batteries and uh, autonomous. Mm -hmm. And he shows pictures of New York City in 1911 with every everything's a horse with one non horse drawn, you know, early Model T. Right. Nine years, seven years later, 1918, 1919, during the middle of the war, World War One, he has another photo. It's reversed. There's one horse and everything else is cars. Yep. And he says it wasn't because everybody changed there. It was because they were demonstrably better. There was it was just <laughs> stupid to not switch. Are we are we close to that place for electric vehicles? Oh, I love I, when, when I'm giving um, um, talks, one of my favorite slides is just something you described because most people lack an imagination about how quickly this turnover could happen because it was within 20 or 30 years that 60% of households in the United States got cars and and they went from the incumbent solution it wasn't like they were switching from a gas car to an electric car they were going from a horse to a car which the last time I looked a horse and a car are kind of different right <laughs> That was profound. Um, uh, and so the question becomes, can we make that transition? Well, you, you bet we can, right? If, and this is the big if, we need a whole bunch of things to happen uh, in, in, with the cooperation of our governments. And, and here's where I, I don't want to get completely down the rat hole and energy geek nerdy on you, but there are profound consequences to our electric distribution system when we start plugging in our cars. Profound. Can you get a little bit geeky with yeah. me about that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a great example. Most homes that we build today are, you know, when you're, when you're building a house and you gotta bring electricity to the house, the utility sizes all the wires and the feeders based on, they, they figure out what's the, the time of the user peak load, right? You've got a house and everything electric in that house is turned on at the same time you're operating at peak okay uh -huh. you got yeah. two girls blowing their hair you got three refrigerators in the basement you got five computers on all the lights in the house you why everything gets turned up that's peak okay uh -huh. most so here's the interesting thing most homes in the united states are, are designed to peak somewhere around, I'm going to use the, the word three to four kilowatts. That's a measurement of energy. Now I'm going to tell you that I have a charger in my garage that pulls not three kilowatts, but 7.2. That's double. Hmm. More than double. I do my math. Okay. So I want you to just think about now, of course, when utilities design these things, they, they allow for some headroom. But what we're talking about, this is the most profound thing to happen to our electric distribution system ever. The last time we had, and we use the word load for the demand, for the electric demand, the last time we had something like this present ourselves was, present itself was, you might guess, what was the, what, if you could think about the big load that might have come on that's not electric cars? Uh, dryers? Air conditioning. Ah. Air conditioning. But air conditioning is seasonal and it's also different in different places in the country, right? So it's, it's very different. This is, not only is this huge load that's about to come onto our distribution system, but it's load that moves around. 
We've never had anything like that. It's mobile load. And not only is it load that moves around, but what's a car, an electric car? It's really just a battery on wheels, right? Mm, uh -huh. So if it's a battery on wheels, can it actually also supply electricity to our grid or our home as well as consume it when it needs to be charged? Yeah, uh -huh. that's something we call vehicle to grid. So that's just a taste of how profound this is because now I've got an electric car. Now, not today. We're a little bit far from that. Well, actually, I say far. A, a few years, I think, um, in a few years, we're going to see more what's called vehicle-to-grid capability. And we're going to be able to take our car that's in our garage. And when my power goes down, i got a big battery sitting there that I can mm -hmm. use to power some things in my house. Right. Right. So the idea is that there there are going to be certain peaks that are that are greater than what we have to deal with now. But on the whole, the consumption is going to go way down because of efficiencies. Uh, consumption is actually going to go up. Right. We're going to consume a hell of a lot more electricity because we're translating all of the energy we use in fossil fuel to electricity now. Right. Uh -huh. Our transportation sector. So overall, electricity consumption goes way up. We have, for the first time, some tools to be able to manage when and where that load presents itself, right? Mm -hmm. I could say most of my charging is going to be done at home at night. And by the way, at night, consumption's way down, right? We've got enough energy in the system, enough power plants in the system right now to supply, um, you know, a, a fair amount of electricity at night, not during peak hot summer days. Mm -hmm. So we've got... This all translates to we have a lot of work to do to make sure if we want to make this adoption happen as quickly as possible, which we do, we've got a lot of work to do to make sure we do it in a thoughtful, planful way so that we can extract the most benefits and avoid harm. Right. Now, it also, it also I, I think we have to think about where the electricity comes from, how it's generated, right? Like if, if all of a sudden we're not doing crude oil from the Middle East, but we're doing coal from strip mountaintop destruction in West Virginia, it's probably not a net benefit. Um, so are we, like, how are we looking to create the electricity? Yeah. So first, let me disabuse folks of the fact that even today, in many places like New Jersey, our electricity is relative. There's two things going on. Our electricity is relatively clean, right? In New Jersey, we don't have a lot of coal plants. In fact, we have none operating. It's mostly nuclear and natural gas and some renewables. And we're going to have some offshore wind soon, which is very exciting. Um, couple that, couple a relatively clean grid with the fact that the IC engine is extraordinarily inefficient. In so I like to use pizza because I love pizza. I'm a Jersey girl. The IC is internal combustion? Internal combustion engine, yeah. Okay. So imagine that I give you a pizza pie. I, maybe you like pizza too, but maybe I give okay. you a pizza pie. Um, and, and, all right, so it's um, Roman Gourmet, right? In oh Maplewood? Yes, Roman Gourmet. With the okay. Should, should we say that we, we've known each other since like 1979? Yeah, we were, a long we were, time. Mrs. Kurt, Mrs. Curtin's eighth grade uh, social studies class, right? Well, yes, we've known each other a long time. So I'm going to give you a pizza from the Roman Gourmet, and I'm going to take away seven slices. Seven slices of a ten-slice pie. 
that's the internal combustion engine. It's about 35% efficient. It's nuts, but that's what we have. And to be honest, they could wring all the efficiency out of it and maybe they get to 38% and people can argue about that, but it's extraordinarily inefficient. So we've got two things. We've got a relatively clean, clean grid in New Jersey and a really inefficient internal combustion engine. That means this. Every mile that Pam drives today in her electric car is about 70% cleaner in terms of carbon than the equivalent mile in an internal combustion engine. Now, to your point, that just gets better as we clean up the grid. And that has to happen simultaneously. So natural gas is not uh, carbon free, right? We need to come up with ways, I mean, nuclear when it's generating is carbon free and i would i would say while i'm not a huge fan of building more traditional nuclear plants um i do think the ones that we have we need to get as much out of as we can while we're making these transitions and we're always you know we're hopeful to see some new technologies maybe with nuclear that are much smaller and don't have um the waste issues but we'll see what technology brings us. If we get battery costs down really low, um, cheap energy storage changes the world in profound ways. So, because you can make electricity so many different ways. And if you can store it cheaply, that changes people's lives. Hmm. Okay. And so I think I, I saw something, I don't know if it's science fiction or 10 years or 20 years away, but like intelligent roads, that's a thing. Yeah, um, I was actually having a conversation with our commissioner of transportation um, about a week ago about this, right? And so that's fascinating. Um, the idea. Yeah. So what, 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 what am I talking about when I say that? Because I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot. It's sort of like people use the term smart grid. What do they mean by that? Well, what do you mean by a smart road? What I mean by a smart road is the idea to be able to put some intelligence into a roadway, right? So think think about this. You could put, first of all, there's something called inductive charging. Inductive charging is the idea that as a car is riding on a surface, they're able to pick up charge. It's like wireless charging. You may think about it that way. So they're actually able to pick up charge, potentially even generate electricity as they're riding along a road. There's also intelligence that could be embedded into the road that could, for example signal if there is a dead deer five miles ahead in the road, right? And be able to give that information back to a driver. There's also technology in a road that could melt ice, right? Um, there's also um, traffic signaling or congestion signaling or lane changing that could happen as a result of feedback um, coming from cars that are riding on the road. So you're trying to really make roads smart now, you would be right to say, boy, that sounds like it costs a lot of money. And, you know, that's a great, infra that's a great 21st century infrastructure project, right? Like mm. Eisenhower built our highways. Like maybe we need to think about doing something like that again, but for the 21st century, right? That's a huge, big infrastructure project, but the technology is, is, is really making that possible. Hmm. Wow. And is that uh, when we think, you know, I still think about a car as a human being gets in, steps on the gas, steps on the brake, <clears throat> drives it. We're certainly moving towards autonomous 
vehicles. I'm imagining you know, a smart road would make it a lot easier to produce the AI in a car. Uh, but like what you know, can, do you have a vision of like transportation, personal consumer transportation in 10 years that I just can't picture yet? Yeah, there's there's a you know, it's interesting. There's a company in Israel and the name eludes me right now, but they're they're thinking about autonomy. And and, and there's a there's look the, the thing with autonomy that's challenging um, is and I'm not a software or computer engineer. Um, what I understand about the challenges with autonomous driving right now is really if you've got a roadway where it was just autonomous cars. That's an easy problem. That's something that we could do today. Yeah. The, the problem becomes when you introduce humans and human drivers with autonomous cars. And we're very hard to predict, humans. <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah, essentially, it's, it's a legislative problem. Like if we could legislate, okay, only autonomous cars from now on. Right, right. That makes it a lot easier, right? But you've got these blended systems. <clears throat> that I that make it challenging um, and a, a whole bunch of regulations, right? Um, so that's I, I actually I am not I'm a little dubious about when we're going to see sort of full bloom aut autonomous um, driving, just because I think from a regulatory perspective, it's going to be very challenging and there's technology challenges, mm. too. Well, I could see a city doing it. You know, I could well, see San, San Francisco yeah. or Palo Alto and then humans like we could go to Action Park and drive our little like like it'll be like a ride. Like I like that vision. I do. I mean, I think that's where you're going to you're going to see it piloted, I think, in sort of contained areas first, which would make sense. Um, I also think, you know, part of my vision, by the way, so people think about, and this is what this Israeli company is, is, is thinking about too, is, is not just, you know, Pam has to get to the dock, right? So if she calls this autonomous car that she doesn't own, because why own it? You know, it's just a service now, right? So she calls this autonomous car and she gets in it and it, it takes her to the doctor's office. Well, if I'm going to go there, why can't I say, well, Pam is just sitting at home and the doctor's office comes to her on wheels. Hmm. So there's all <laughs> kinds of interesting models. I, the, the, I love that one because years ago and in your world, when you think about the challenge of, of, of bringing um, or permitting uh, slaughterhouses, like I, I remember talking about this with some of my New Jersey friends that are farmers, right? If you want to do sort of sustainable farming, um, and, and part of that is, you know, you want the ability to, to slaughter your own meat. Um, it, that's a very challenging thing to do in a place like New Jersey. It may be more permissible in other places. But years ago, somebody came up with this idea and they piloted it in New York of mobile slaughterhouses, which was like, wow, that's, you know, I laughed a little bit being Jewish and kosher. I'm like, could they put like a, 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 a certified mishkiach like on the end so you could have like a little mm. kosher slaughter thing on the caboose? Um, right. And all, that, and, all, and all my vegan listeners are. I know. Well, are, che are checked out right now. I'm sorry. That, that's so, sort of like it's, as, example. as an example. Yeah. Well, as an example that comes well, to mind. Well, also think about, think about, you know, the, in, like 100 years ago, the peddler who used to go down the street sharpening everyone's knives. That's right. Right. It's much more efficient if you know if now you have this big like an office building that can move around on wheels and can service everybody in the road. 
it's you know so much less so many fewer trips yeah well the, so the vision is is of mobility it becomes really dynamic you know it's infused with intelligence i think one of the most exciting things about um what electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and even the change in car ownership with the ubers and the lifts and all these different kinds of as sort of mobility as a service it really opens up opportunities for the population of people that can can no longer drive right mm -hmm. um for for all those baby boomers and i'm one because i just made it, i'm a december 64 baby um so for all of us baby boomers that are going to be aging and for all the services we know are going to be required because we're going to live longer um you know this this is actually really important you know how isolating it can be for older folks who can no longer drive so giving i mean that's profound and going to be very beneficial it is even today you know my mom doesn't want to drive somewhere she still drives but if she doesn't want to drive somewhere she doesn't want to drive into philly or something i said just call an uber right call lyft um and that's that's just a very user-friendly um, way to promote mobility. And mobility is a key to so many health outcomes, you know, getting mm -hmm. good food, getting good access to medical care, jobs, all this. Right. So there's there's an environmental critique by uh, by a certain um, group of people. And, I, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this, that technology isn't going to save us, mm -hmm. that ultimately it's, we, we need to come back into relation to the earth. And that, that so all these new technologies, whether somebody does invent something that sucks carbon out of the air or, you know, autonomous solar vehicles that, that, that at some point we have to change our relationship with the planet and not be the dominator species grabbing everything we can. Um, and, you know, segueing from talking about like the social implications of, of this uh, mobility revolution for elder people to be more social. Can you see how any of this can can sort of lead to humans becoming better rather than just being more efficient at being bad? You know, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's sort of, you know, living with and amongst the earth, not dominating it right, and trying to be more gentle with it and more thoughtful. I think there's going to be some, some technologies that are going to help us do that, but I, I do agree with you, which I think the whole way we approach our interaction with the environment really needs to change. Um, and that's both, remember, I think I told you at the beginning when we were speaking, a lot of my approach to this work is both, you know, come with facts, come with good analysis, but also come with passion and look to change culture and belief. I think both of these things have to go hand in hand. I do think technology is is part of how we solve the, the challenges, but it's not the entire story. Um, I, I agree. There's a whole question about... And I'm really interested in, sort of like I said, my one of my pet projects. And I didn't. I took a year of uh, of economics when I was in college, and I've become really, really interested in new ways of thinking about uh, economic systems, right? And especially when you think about consumerism, right, and growth, mm -hmm. and could we get to an economy that's not necessarily based on ever escalating growth? Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a a big an important discussion that we need to be having. 
I, you know, I'm not going to put a label on that. That doesn't necessarily make me a communist, a socialist, whatever ist you want to say. I think there's a, a profound new conversation that we may be ready for soon, um, just because of some of the challenges we're experiencing. I, and I think we've seen some changes. I mean, the pandemic is fascinating to me, and we'll probably just not really understand this fully until you and I are both dead. Um, in terms of the way it's going to shift our society and our culture. Mm. How many people mm. do you know today that, are, are, that, that, that you suspect may have been changed, right, by having to um, shelter in place? Um, and uh, it, it forces um, a rethinking of, of a lot of things we just held as firm assumptions. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know, you know, because part of me thinks as soon as this is over, everyone's going to go back to doing things exactly the way they were before. Part of me thinks like there are so many things that I appreciate now that I didn't appreciate before. <laughs> like when I, why would I go out to eat? Oh, it was for you know convenience. Someone else cleans up. No, it's to be out <laughs> seeing other, you know, like there's a whole other dim social dimension that wasn't so clear to me. Um, well, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to know. Like, so how you and I are one cohort, right? I think about my 18-year-old son, who was literally, I mean, he was conceived like several days before 9/11. Just mm -hmm. one of the people that knew when she was pregnant right away. I just, I didn't want to have coffee in the morning. That was one of my big signs. I wake <laughs> up and I'm just like, ooh, lost my taste for that. Um, but. The bookends of his 18-year-old life have been, you know, 9-11 on the one end and COVID on the other. And so Max, is that's his name. So Max, Max's way of thinking about the world is so profoundly different than you and I. Mm. And he's just been shaped by things that we all thought were unthinkable. He now yeah. takes those. I'm not going to say he takes those things for granted, but I'm just going to say his imagination is much broader than your, you know, ours may have been mm -hmm. about how the world could be, what could happen, and even the prospects for change. Right. So when you were talking earlier about just you know the blood and the and the atmosphere and those very very thin margins where we're we're okay inside a range, but when it gets below or above, I drew a little diagram to maybe talk about later. And it just came it's it's I drew a donut and it's based on this idea of like donut economics um, by Kate Rock book by Kate Raworth, um, basically saying what you were saying, like, can we have like the donut itself is the livable, you know, the, the inside is all human beings living a life of of dignity, where they have enough, where there's not poverty, disease, suffering. And the outer limit is the limits of our our Earth as an economy, right. Right? as right, like economics and ecosystem should be exactly the same thing. <laughs> right. So, well, that's that goes to the point where you start to realize, and even economists, I'll say sort of enlightened economists, realize that there's a finite amount of resource, um, and which is why when you think about energy and energy systems, it's much more interesting to think about what we would call capturing flows, which are recurring and renewable, 
mm-hmm. rather than fuels, right? Which are finite, and you know, uh, and so, um, and and to your point about you know people just having enough, um, that's a, an you know. I was a big fan of Mad Men, which was a television show. I just got around to watching it during the pandemic, like I am, 10 years after. But uh, one of the interesting things I liked about that series was that, you know, it takes place in the 50s and the 60s, and you start to see the beginning of wild consumerism mm. and how um, the advertising uh, world, who was so keyed into the psychology of, of, or manipulating our psychology, right, to make us want things that we didn't really need <laughs> and mm-hmm. didn't know we wanted before they told us we wanted them. Um, so it's so interesting because I think, well, why couldn't an advertising world today really start reshaping? I mean, it does take a village. It's going to take, you know, um, an, uh, you know, the rethinking about even how, you know, how corporations are going to figure out how they sustain, you know, what is the appropriate level of growth? What is the, you know, are you chasing, ever chasing the sort of next big thing to just keep growing, growing, growing? Um, but I think there's a, a, a good uh, and thoughtful conversation for us to start having about these new growth models. And hopefully in the universities, you know, hopefully some of the crops of Students that are starting to go through through um, and, and get come into their own uh, academically and in positions of influence, mm-hmm. hopefully they they really can start to move or shift some of our thinking. But I think mm-hmm. it's entirely possible. It's it is a um, boy. If ever if ever an opportunity presented itself to think about big new bold ideas, it's you know climate change, global pandemic. Coming to terms with racism. I mean, we've got all these big, big things happening right now. Um, we should be we should be challenging everything. Yeah. So I got I got uh, two two more sort of sci-fi type questions for you for around transportation. So one is, you know, I spent uh, I spent uh, a year in England. And I didn't have a car and didn't need a car. And the public transportation system was awesome. So far, the the solution, the capitalist solution to transportation in America has been individual, like based on the individual car. And arguably, you know, all the expenditures on from Tesla, like you, you could, you know, you just buy buses, you know, like green buses could be more efficient and sort of moving like is is there a space for for public transportation maybe it's it's a different conversation after covid but for sort of commons as opposed to individual you know consumer solutions so let's think about it as a system where i think public transportation for moving big chunks of people you know big groups of people around is a is going to be an important part of the system but i also think um there's going to be uh, micro mobility solutions um, that are going to be more um, dominant in certain areas like cities. So things like electric scooters, electric bikes, even mm. very small electric cars that can get people to um, to specific areas. One of the biggest issues with transit is that last mile problem, right? Mm-hmm. Where transit, and, and we know this from working with communities 
in urban areas that don't have cars and they have to rely on transit to bring them to jobs and and uh, and other things they may need and the transit only takes them so far so there's a there is a way to solve this where you combine transit and micro mobility solutions and then i think in between there are always i mean i think driving um is is very american and i'm not sure that ever really goes away just as just as when you were hypothesizing that maybe car ownership goes away, I think um, a lot of people are going to opt not to have cars, but I think there's there may be some people that always are going to want to have cars. I, I don't know how big that population is going to be, and maybe it depends on if you're more of a rural person mm. or an urban person and you know how much you like to track off and, and explore. Yeah. So if we're going to have these micro-mobility solutions, they're going to be piloted by humans, presumably. Cars and scooters aren't going to be autonomous. I mean, bicycles and scooters. Um, do we get our own lanes then so we don't mess up the autonomous uh, motorized vehicle? Uh, oh, I love that question because, you know, it's kind of this new approach and new thinking about urban planning. And I've seen some things about, you know, reimagining uh, because of COVID and because of the different work habits, you know, reimagining cities. Mm. And the lanes and more pedestrian spaces. And, you know, if you've seen what's happened in New York over the last 10 or 20 years, you know, New York became a much more livable place with outdoor areas and tables and chairs and bike lanes and places people could sit. But now it's being contemplated as the entirety of Midtown and so many offices or play, uh, companies that may not elect to return to Midtown. They're thinking about, you know, converting some of that to residential. And when you think, I mean, that, that can really start to change um, how a city could be imagined and what it could look like. And and you are going to need those different areas, right, for certain kinds of mobility um, options. You know, you don't really want a transit bus sharing a lane with an electric scooter. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, you know, electric bikes are a huge industry right now. They've been, they've been growing pre-pandemic. I was on one. I'm 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 a bike snob. Like, why do I need a motor? I was on one in New Orleans um, a year ago. It was so much fun. Well, I'll tell you, I love it because I I was in Bermuda a few years ago, and my husband he doesn't really love to bike. Mostly, he's a, he's a little older than I am, and you know, a lot of people have in electric cars. We call it range anxiety, fear of running out of charge. Well, for people on bikes, you know, we might call it like elevation anxiety because you're like, how am I going to do that hill, right? <laughs> but when you have an electric bike, it takes all that away. So maybe people that didn't bike before, you know, would consider biking now. I just know in Bermuda, I spent literally two and a half hours on my bike pedaling most of the time, right? It's not like I wasn't getting any exercise, but if I felt like I needed to cheat, it was there for me. Yeah, <laughs> that it's it's so interesting that an electric bike is such a game changer because I remember this now twenty years ago being tantalized by I don't know if you remember this um, project Ginger by yeah. Dean Dean Kamen. So he was Dean Kamen was this inventor, just sort of, you know, he was like the Elon Musk of his day, like crazy smart. He had invented a wheelchair that goes upstairs based on and it was gyroscopic. And it was you know, obviously a very small market. And then he announced this other project that was going to change the world. And like Steve jo and all these all these tech jillionaires, titans 
were, were nobody was saying what it was, but they were all saying this is going to change the world completely. Steve Jobs said this is the biggest invention since the computer. <clears throat> you know what it was? The Segway. The Segway. <laughs> right? yes. Which, which uh, they stopped making them. The company's like gone. This like this was our thinking 20 years ago, like this is going to change urban planning. This is going to change the world. And it turned out to be such a dud. I mean, the technology is kind of interesting and is moving into into other platforms. But like this conversation with you is like just sort of mind blowing about what we could imagine. Wait a second. Wait a second. I mean, I, now you've got me so curious. So I'll have to go and follow up about like why Segway failed, because I, by the way, I've never been on a Segway. I've always wanted to try a Segway because they look so cool, but I've never been on one. Clearly, they, they proliferated in law enforcement, or at least mall cops, you know, <laughs> is there. Um, but I, I, yeah, why didn't that happen? <laughs> hard, I mean, hard to say, right? It's, it's, you know, but, but, in, but it, I mean, ultimately, it wasn't that imaginative. That's it right. was sort of like individual solutions. And I, I kind of like I had a tiny fear about this conversation just being like really wonky and technical about issues of, you know, transportation and charging stations. And instead, it's like this most, you know, wild, psychedelic, futuristic discussion of what humanity could be on this earth, part part of an ecosystem rather than glommed on top of it, sucking all the, the resources up. That's right. And you know, one thing we haven't touched on, although it's a topic that's a favorite of mine is, you know, when you were talking before about um, being more gentle um, with the earth and living in harmony with it, uh, as opposed to trying to dominate it. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens over the next 10 or 20 years is that we start to understand everything we never really imagined when it comes to animal intelligence. And um, I mean, I have, as you know, chickens, two dogs, two cats. I love animals. I, I would have a, a goat and a llama or I'd lose, lose a husband, I've been told. So I, I probably have more animals and I don't live on a farm. That's another issue. Um, but I think we're going to start to appreciate and understand and, and maybe really react in horror about what our relationship with animals and even animals for food uh, ha has been. Um, I think that's an understanding and an awareness that is, is going to uh, reveal itself in the next 10 to 20 years. Mm. Well, especially regarding transportation, like which we, you know, we, I, you know, I certainly think about animals for food all the time, but with, like the way transportation has harmed animals in terms of highways, either, you know, cutting off habitat to, or roadkill or just, you know, like uh, marine transportation, like the way, you know, whales and dolphins going nuts because of all the sounds. Uh, and again, we don't even know what we don't know. You know, they just discovered, they think they just discovered a, a pod of orchids that's, that could be a new species I was reading about. And, you know, and somebody wrote, you know, this is just, this just underscores how much we don't understand about what's in our ocean. <laughs> living in our ocean, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it feels to me as though that that's going to be a, a, a new um, kind of a new awareness for us. And, and it, it does come back to transportation. Transportation has, you know, it's really the ability of how we move around on, on our planet 
um, and how we sort of do our day to day. And, and, you know, the growth of the suburbs was made possible because of all the support that was given for highways and, and, and cars and, and that entire system that brought us out of cities, you know, that made all of that possible, the growth of the places like the, the Levitt towns, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was all because of the car. And what's, what's funny is when I talk to um, urban planners today and, and other environmentally minded uh, planners, I, you know, they always start with cars are bad. They, they do start from that place. Cars are bad. There's, mm-hmm. you know, cars come with all this required infrastructure. And, you know, I'm trying to imagine, could we get to a place where we say cars aren't, car, cars aren't necessarily bad. Um, I'm not, you know, d- density is, 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 I think, generally speaking, good for human populations. I, I like cities. I like what happens when people are sort of pushed together and required to get along. And you see a lot of innovation and energy, human energy that come out of cities, right? And denser populations. But we're always going to have that rural sort of urban divide. Um, there's always going to be people that either prefer or want to make their livelihood living in sort of more rural areas. There's always going to be people that are going to prefer more urban areas. And linking them is also really, really important. And it reminds me, one of the things I wanted to bring up on this call was a farm uh, up in North Jersey, Ironbound Farm, which it's run by a friend of mine, but Here's a guy, I thought you might find this interesting. You know, he's a committed environmentalist, but he's also trying to, he's got a lot of interest in reforming um, criminals, people that have previously been incarcerated. Hmm. People that have previously been incarcerated. And trying to bridge the sort of urban-rural divide, he has a property in Hunterdon County where he makes cider, and he brings people from Newark, New Jersey, that have been previously incarcerated that have been working his farm the last four years and the farm is all sustainably based and incorporating lots of different crops and trying to basically figure out these and unlock these magical synergies Mm. that happen you know um in a in a truly organic and sustainable small farm and and kind of create an economy and a community that's very local based but it gets to this point of this urban and rural um these are two really different populations and the more that we can link them in meaningful ways i think the better off we'll be yeah i mean when i look at sort of the you know the broad sweep of history cities don't seem to have been sustainable right like they when you look at like where the big cities were in the middle east the first cities it's desert now right and it wasn't desert then they didn't build the city and like hey this look at all this sand and rock let's put something here right they were like lush and so the history of cities has been the power in the city sucks the rural area dry. And like, can we can are we going to keep doing that until like the world is destroyed or, you know, because like New York is like vibrant and great and Tokyo and Chicago and San Francisco, like over 100 years or 200 years, maybe, but a thousand years, the way we do cities has not been sustainable. So it's like. I wonder if there's urban planners who are looking, you know, with a real historical eye to what would it take to create something where the city 
ecosystem is regenerative rather than uh, creating deficits. Yeah, I, I, a few years ago, I ran across some writing about this idea that, you know, if you just take kind of an urban area and you start to build out concentric circles, right, around it, where food production, as an example, is kind of happening on the wide periphery, right, and is able to support the urban, you know, that urban area. Um, and so it, it's sort of a self-sustaining ecosystem, um, but it does take into account urban populations, exurban populations, and then more rural populations uh, in a way that that's mutually supporting, right? Um, and that's kind of an interesting, and again, when we're talking about uh, new economies, that's kind of an interesting and new way to think about um, how how communities could be built to exist. And they're sort of commonality, right? They're common shared purpose in in preserving that outer ring and, and everything that goes on on in on the sort of inner core uh, and and helping them um, interrelate i i get interested in that stuff because i see when you look at our politics today and when you look at the the electoral map and you see rural looking a certain way and you see urban looking a certain way you need to start figuring out how we we um talk to each other and Maybe how I relate this back to transportation is, you know, how we're moving the goods and services and people and relationships that are essential to life and linking them um, in these ways that are that take into consideration everything we need to live, which is both, you know, some of that's rural based and some of that's more urban based. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I'm thinking back to what you said about the messenger RNA around like science has made a, probably a giant leap forward in immunology by mimicking by by being again humble about what we know and just letting nature do its thing. And I'm, like we probably know so much more now than we did even five or 10 years ago about how nature communicates within itself with you know, mycology and, and the fungal networks, how we know that trees talk to each other that may, you know, maybe we can stop being so hubristic and say, like, we can create transportation in concert, like we could biomimic um, the way nature moves things because nature moves things incredibly efficiently. Does actually that that whole field you know, think after I was just starting out today, I think one of the most interesting things to explore is all about like the most intelligent designer, which is our natural systems, and really trying to mimic as best we can what nature's doing out there. Um, because it's fascinating and, you know, creating materials that, that mimic what nature does, but the, the cell itself and how things transport right back and forth into a cell. Um, it's 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 fascinating and uh, um, kind of a new way to think about transportation I hadn't really thought about before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like nature is just this giant grid of of exchanges. That's right. Yeah. And that's and that's really what at the end of the day, that's what the transportation system is supposed to be. Right. It's supposed to enable mm -hmm. us to make these exchanges efficiently and and hopefully in a way that's not doing damage to our Earth. <laughs> um, right, right. And as you said, like, you know, we want flows, not fuels. We also want flows, not so much stocks. So 
Like if, if I'm embedded in a system that is going to deliver me what I need when I need it, I don't have to be so greedy. I don't have to live in fear and hoard things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, there have been a lot of posts on social network over the last year where people are remarking about how how much how little they really need to live. Right. Mm. They don't need a lot of stuff. Um, and, uh, and and things can get a bit simpler for all of us. And I love that idea that you just that you just illustrated, which is, you know, if there's just an ease of how um, things can move around um, and scarcity doesn't become such a issue for people um, because people are all treated with dignity and and get what they need to li to live meaningful and 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 authentic lives, um, a lot could change. Wow. I think that's a perfect uh, exclamation point to end the conversation. So thank you so much. This is this has been so much more than I was thinking it was. I, I had I had high hopes, but this is like totally like inspiring and, and mind blowing. And and I love how you've put so many things together, so many different layers and you're operating simultaneously on the level of like ecology and human spirit and marketer and tactician and organizer. It's really inspiring. I'm, I'm so happy we've reconnected. Oh, I am too, Howie. Um, and I, I, I'm just become so interested in some of the work that you're doing. And also, um, I, I want to apologize to any of your audience I may have offended about my, my probably really, I didn't pull the best example when I talked about mobile slaughterhouses. But it was the thing that popped into my head. But I just want to say to you, I, I've become really, really interested in um, just much more mindful eating and health. And mm. I don't know, maybe that's a function of age, too. So I'm sure we'll have a lot <laughs> to talk about after this podcast. And uh, thank you. Awesome. It's so good to reconnect because I love learning about your work and your world. So. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, the organization is charge evc and there's only one e right that's right so it's like charge vc.org that's right for people who want to learn more that's right all right well pam frank thank you for this amazing conversation and for all the work you do in the world thank you for all the work you do and um here's to a really uh, much better 2021 yep amen <laughs> all right see ya all right. You inspired. I'm inspired. If you want to find out more, check out the links that we talked about in the show. You can go find it at plantyourself.com slash four four seven. All right. So I've got some fun running news, movement news, that is. Um, in addition to doing the monkey bar gym workouts five times a week, I did an interview this past week that I will publish next week with Ed Coyle, who's an exercise scientist um, at the University of Texas and Austin. And he talked about four second high intensity interval workouts Four second. Now, that's not obviously the entire workout, but that's the interval at which you're working at maximum power. And so I've been trying that both um, with a uh, sort of weighted resistance band that I'm running against, sort of like a cheap treadmill. And also on my run this morning, I did a couple miles, a mile warm up, a mile cool down. And in between, I did 15 four second all out sprints 
um, with about 30 seconds of rest in between. So you'll learn all about that and why it's such a good idea on next week's podcast. In garden news, we're talking about next year's garden. We are planning right now to be much more humble uh, about what we plant, fewer varieties, less under cultivation. And Mia was talking about finding some neighbors who maybe don't have gardens of their own and might need some guidance and inviting them to take a bed and start growing things on their own. Maybe we can become a little bit of a, a commuting woofing farm.